0: It's kind of like serial data. And when I say serial data, I'm not talking about like your, your, your shredded wheat that you ate this morning. Okay, like in a series, data that comes through in a line in a series, much like computer code. Except instead of a series of ones and zeros, you have your DNA. It's the serial sequence of different amino acids that represent, um, they're represented by uh, the letters A, T, G, and C and it's this long, complex series of code that is nestled into the nucleus of of, of these atoms. Whoa. It's the Lord. What's amazing is that within the tiny space of every single cell in your body, this code can be up to 3 billion letters long in its sequence, To grasp the amount of DNA information in one single cell, if you were to do a live reading of that code at a rate of three letters per second, it would take 31 years to read that information in one single cell, even if you were reading it day and night without sleeping. Scientists have discovered that 99.9% of your DNA is similar to everyone's genetic makeup. So 99, look, look around the room right now, 99.9% of you are exactly the same, yet we're so vastly different because that small 0.1% is what makes you uniquely you all those fractional differences, and how those three billion letters are sequenced in your cells. The U.S. government is able to identify everyone in this room, everyone in this country, by the arrangement of a nine-digit social security number. Yet inside every cell in your body is a three-billion-letter DNA structure that belongs to only you. This code identifies you, and it continually instructs your body and your cell's behavior. It's amazing when you think about it, the complexity of that design, the complexity and the detail that is in that design. That's one of the things about this series that I love. When you're talking about the wonders of God, it's been my hope and my prayer and my goal, like as I'm studying and as I'm prepping, that we would see the vastness and the magnitude of our God, right? When you step back in a starry night and you look up at the sky and you see those stars glimmering and there are just so many, that's one thing that I love about living in Wales right now. When we lived down in Bayview, I'd look up in the sky and I'd see like one or two stars maybe because you have all that light pollution from the city, right? Right? There's many things that I love about Bayview, but I, I, I think I'm more of a nature guy than I think. I thought I was urban and cool and hip. Nah, I'm country. I'm country and probably a little bit hick, and I didn't realize it. And I'm looking up at the sky in my yard. Like this summer, we, we got a blanket out. We as the family, we got a blanket out. We put it out in the front yard. We just laid there and watched the sunset and watched the stars just pop. And I look up at the sky, and I just point. I'm like, I can't tell you where that ends. I can't tell you where that ends. Like, when I look up at the sky like that, I'm just filled with awe and wonder over the magnitude of my God. But yet we serve this sovereign God who rules and reigns over everything, but yet he's so beautifully and deeply personal and intimate And what we see is that is in the person of Jesus coming to this earth and putting on flesh and walking this this life sinlessly, dying a brutal death, paying the debt that we could never pay, and he did it all because he loves us. What a beautiful thing. Man, we must really be shaking this place. Man, this snow is just coming off the roof. Goodness. Amen. (laughs) Yes. This week in my study, I came across a, uh, a doctor, a, a British philosopher. His name is Dr. Anthony Flew. He's brilliant. Um, he's a British philosopher. He taught in uh, some, a lot of schools, but one of them, like Oxford, okay? So this is the magnitude of this guy's brilliance. He teaches at Oxford. He actually died a few years ago. <clears throat> but he was a huge proponent for atheism, He argued that one should presuppose atheism until empirical evidence of God actually surfaces. So you have to presume it, he's saying. Presume that there is no God until there is evidence, empirical evidence, that God exists. He was a big, um, uh, he had a lot of criticism for the idea of life after death, and he actually became one of the uh, signatories of of the Humanist Manifesto 3 back in 2003, Okay? But something happened in 2004, right in the next year. After years of study, and of studying DNA specifically, he came to the conclusion that the only explanation for life is a divine, excuse me, a divine, intelligent creator. His whole life, he's this huge proponent for atheism that there is no God. You have to prove it. There has to be evidence. You have to show me empirical evidence. I will not believe unless I see the evidence. And so he's studying, and he's looking at the data, like much like Jay shared with us today, this code that is within our cells, this DNA code, three billion letters, so beautifully and detailed, he came to the conclusion that there is a divine intelligent creator. Uh, one quote that I came from, uh, across this week from him, it says, superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. He stated that in keeping his lifelong commitment, okay, listen to this, he stated that in keeping with his lifelong commitment to go where the evidence leads, he now believes in the existence of God. He had a lifelong commitment to follow the evidence whatever the evidence leads us to, wherever the evidence leads us, fighting all those presuppositions. And it's funny because we all have many presuppositions, don't we? I think about church. Presuppositions for me in a church is is, is very frustrating. (laughs) Frustrating. We all presuppose some things. A lot of you have a different church background, different things that you were exposed to, and, and a lot of times you listen to a preacher or a teacher and you just kind of took their information and you kind of adopted it, and it was just becomes church tradition or church um, uh, just becomes kind of part of, part of the tradition of what you grew up in. And you kind of presuppose some of those things instead of critically looking at Scripture, critically looking at the data And coming up with some of our own beliefs and our own system, we kind of can just take some of those on and then it's funny because I'll have conversations with people and we'll start using terms and then I realize these terms that we're using, you think it means one thing and I think it means something else. It's funny because when I would make our visitor calls often for the church, I would call, if you fill out that connection card, chances are you get a call from me just warning you, okay? Just warning you. But a lot of times I'd make those visitor calls and somebody would say like, well, are you... This, whatever it is, whatever whatever the hot button topic is, whatever they're looking for, you know, are you uh, cessationist? Are you continuationist? Or are you um, Pentecostal? Are you charismatic? Or are you um, Calvinist? Or many like whatever whatever the label is, and I'd have to go. Well, we have to define that term because you're probably going to presuppose some things into this conversation based on what you think that actually means. And for us, for me, for Mercy Hill Church, I fight a lot of those labels because what I want to do is I want to get my nose in that book, get my nose into scripture, and let that then define everything else that flows out of that to follow the evidence in Scripture, to follow the truth of Scripture. So whatever that word says, that's what I'm going to say. Whatever that word says, I'm going to do my best to um, allow the Spirit of God to transform me and conform my mind and my will to that beautiful book. And so I fight those presuppositions when I open up those Scriptures. I love what he says there. Go where the evidence leads me, and now this doctor flew. He believes in the existence of God. It led him to it. He followed the evidence, and it led him to God. Think of verses like Jeremiah 29:13, where it says, "You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart, when you see the evidence of the Creator." of an omnipotent God who has the power and the intellect and the compassion and the love to create with such precision and with such detail this thing we call existence in life. The evidence of God is all around us. When you look at inanimate objects, man, many of you are outdoorsy types, right? Like I said, I think I'm more like that than I realize, you walk out to the lake and you look out over the lake and you say the magnet of God. You walk out to the mountains, you go out west and you see the mountains and you just see that grand creation in front of you. You can't help but think of God. The sounds of nature. Have you ever gone outside at night in the silence of night and realized just how not silent it is? There's this chorus of, of crickets and, and animals singing unto their God under the stillness of night. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, familiar passage says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Right, That the divine attributes of our God, this holy creator, this intelligent designer, has been clearly made known in his creation. In nature, in inanimate objects, yes, but then when you look at life itself, if we see and follow the evidence in life itself, we will discover the one who wrote the code of our complex DNA, the code of life itself, and we will discover the author of life, the evidence of, of God in creation, and especially in human life, it's, it's astounding. It's overwhelming. Wives, when you woke up this morning and you saw your hunk of a husband lying there in bed, hair all a mess, eyes all crusty, morning breath. I know you were overcome by that creation in front of you that you thought to yourself, oh man, there must be a God. (laughs) Right? Maybe not creation, maybe more of a creature in front of you. (laughs) When you see the complexities and the beauty of God in creation and in specifically in human life, the evidence will lead us to the author of life, the sovereign life giver, there are there any writers out there? Have you guys writers? I have a 12-year-old turning 13 tomorrow. Goodness gracious. But he's quite the writer. He has actually written a novel, a fantasy novel. He's, I think he's over 70 pages. About 70 pages. Blows my mind. My final thesis in Bible college was about 47 pages, Okay? It's like a 23-year-old kid at that point. My, my 12-year-old is writing novels here. Um, but a good author, like my son, gives life to a character, right? An author gives life to his subjects, to those characters within that book. And God, not just in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense, gives life to his creation, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, when he takes the dust from the ground and he forms it, and then he breathes the breath of life into Adam. And there, from that moment, the author of life has given life. David expresses the handiwork of God in giving life, and not just life, but since he's the giver of life, he's knowing and creating in an intimate fashion. Psalm 39, excuse me, 139, verses 13 and 14. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. This God that we serve, this God who made us his own, he is the author of life. He is the one who creates He is the one who ingrains that code of DNA in our bodies. But yet, there is also a killer. You have the one who's the giver of life, and then you have the other one, Satan himself, who is the taker of life. He is a murderer. A murderer is someone who kills. A murderer is someone who willfully takes life. And when I read John chapter 8, Verse 44, it says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Other parts in John describes the thief who comes to kill and to steal and destroy. And he leads his own to do the same. In Peter, our study just a few weeks ago, we talked about false teachers, those who lead people astray, their own desires, their own greed, their own covetousness, overcomes their teaching, sneaks into their teaching, appeals to the greed and the covetousness of their followers, and it ultimately leads to destruction in that text we talked about how they were slaves of corruption meaning decay or corruption or or death excuse me the enemy of our souls full of lies falsehood scheming trickery because he is the father of lies and he is the life taker the murderer All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world and with it its wages, which is death, everything was broken, everything was tarnished, everything became corrupted, and everything is moving toward death. But God had a plan. But God had a plan. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, you see the very first messianic prophecy that the offspring of the woman Eve would come and crush the head of the serpent, overcoming the murderer, killing and, and, and undoing the hurt, the pain, the death that is caused by sin and the murderer himself. God, the author of life, had a plan for death so that brings us to this Christmas story. And to so one of my favorite Christmas verses of all, and that's John 3.16. Now some of you said, that's not a Christmas verse. It's actually just after he was talking to Nicodemus, saying, you must be born again. See, John 3.16, most of you don't even have to look at your Bible, but you could recite it from heart because you learned it in Sunday school. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, but have everlasting life. Couldn't plan the dramatics any better. That's awesome. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, the Christmas story is about that verse. For God so loved the world, that God so loved broken sinners enslaved to their sin and ultimately to death. He loved them so much that he sent his one and only Son And he sent that son and a babe in a manger full of hay. Love came down. God condescended to man. Keep that in mind. We cannot reach God. That's the problem. That's the problem with religion. See, the chasm is way too great. The chasm because of sin is way too great. Man's attempt to reach God is ultimately what religion is all about. It's us trying somehow, some way to make myself right before a holy and just God. Me trying to reach him. But it cannot be done. In my own strength, in my own power, I will not be made right But God in his mercy, in his great love for the world, sent his son. He condescended, came down, and became everything. The conqueror of the murderer, Satan. And all the consequences and all the um, unrest and all the havoc that has been sown into this world because of sin, Christ redeems. And he had to come down to do it. You see, Christ put on flesh to be our Redeemer. He put on flesh to be our righteousness. I I, I say this all the time. See, there's so many times where we see the sinless life of Jesus Christ as this example for us to measure up to. And if that's the only thing that we take from the sinless life of Jesus, I become very discouraged. I don't know about you, but I become very discouraged because I can't do it. I try my darndest, and by the end of the day, I'm exhausted, and I feel horrible about myself. I suck. I can't say that in church. I do. I just do. I cannot do it on my own. I'm full of sin. There's no goodness in me, Scripture says. But Jesus is righteous. Righteous. And all the demands of the perfect holy law of God has been satisfied in the sinless life of Jesus. And when I put my faith in him, I put my trust in him, I hand my life over to him, his righteousness is put on me. And now I'm able to stand before a holy God because he condescended and came down for me. Love came down. Jesus Christ God, driven by love, because of his great love for us, he made us alive and we're no longer condemned by our sin. this morning, as I was getting ready for church, I was reminded, I was reminded of some of the psalms that I read about the endurance of God's love. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. If you look through the Psalms, Psalms 100, Psalms 106, 107, 117, one, so many Psalms speak of the enduring love of God, that his love endures forever, that it doesn't die. It doesn't expire. Everything in this life, life itself will pass away because everything expires. Go to your refrigerator right now when you go home today. And look in your fridge and see if there's anything expired. Everything in that fridge will someday expire. Have you ever opened the door of your fridge and be smacked in the face by some pungent odor? And you know that something is corrupted, something is decaying, something has gone bad? And our best attempts, I think about this in my own life, our best attempts, like a refrigerator, like this beautiful piece of, of, of invention and ingenuity, like that we can preserve things and keep them. Like think about it like 150 years ago, right? You had ice boxes at the best, right? You're salting meat so that they don't spoil Right, now we got this beautiful thing that has an ice maker and a, and a water spout on it, like, and it, some of you guys have like TV screens on it, whatever, and it like reminds you when the door's open, your kids left the door like, beep- beep- beep, and They're like, "Hey, the door's open, Close me." What a, what a crazy thing the time in which we live. The thing about it is even our best efforts, it's all going to expire. It's all going to decay. It's all going to corrupt and rot. But the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to... The steadfast love of the Lord, our, our scripture we read in our Advent reading today, never ever ceases. It endures forever. It will not die or expire. And that love is what drove our God, to send his son to stand in our place, to live that sinless life, but to stand in our place and to die for our sins, the death that was deserved of us, Jesus came down and he paid that debt. It's my prayer that we would see that enduring love, that we would see it, that we would respond to it, that we would run towards him, the author of life today, the one who wrote the code of life into our DNA with all of its complexity and detail, the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us, this author of life, that we would see him and respond to him today, that we would be filled with wonder and awe, not only of the grand complexity of this beautiful designer, but that we would see the beauty of his intimacy and we would run to him today. Because of his glory and his great love for us. The author of life himself, he came down and he put on flesh. He dwelt among us to give you life. Yes, in this life, but, yet, but better yet, life eternal. And he did it for his glory and simply because he loves you. It's my prayer that you would understand the vastness of God's love for you today the fullness of God's love for you today. It wasn't rooted in your goodness, but it was just rooted in him and his goodness. That's the thing about love. When we talk about God's love, a lot of times we we like to say it's unconditional, right? It's not conditioned on us, and that's true. It's wonderfully true, but I don't think we understand the fullness and the beauty of that statement. It's not conditioned on us, it's conditioned on Him and the fact that He's steadfast and never moves. His love endures forever. As I said before, it's my prayer that in this series we would see the grand nature of our God and be filled with wonder. But not just see the grand nature of our God, that we would see His sovereignty and His closeness, His intimacy in a new way, that we would be struck by his great love for us, for you specifically, that he would come down, put on this corruptible flesh, all because of love. That he's able to sympathize with everything we've ever faced because of love. He was tempted, he was hurt, he was scorned, he was rejected for you, for me, because of his love. It's my prayer that we would see the author of life, that he's the giver of life everlasting, and that today we would respond to that love. So as we conclude and as Nate and the band comes, I want you to do some business with God this morning. Have you experienced life everlasting through Jesus Christ? Have you experienced salvation because of Jesus? If you have not experienced that salvation, give in your heart and put your faith in Christ. Today, I would implore you, I would encourage you, today's your day of salvation. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the righteous and holy one who came down because he loved us, and that's Jesus. So today, put your faith in him. He's the author of life in life everlasting. Let's respond to our God today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for your love. I thank you, God, that it was your love for us that drove you to send your son Jesus to this earth To experience all the brokenness of this life, that you can sympathize with us, that you know and that you would just sit with us in some of the darkest moments of our life, some of the biggest pains of our life, God, that, that you would just be there. You're there with us in those moments and you can sympathize. You walk this earth sinlessly and it has become our righteousness. God, we thank you for your righteousness. That it's not in me, but God, it's in you. That it's not conditioned on my merits and my goodness, but God, it is all found in you, in your goodness and your merit. So God, if there's people in this room today that struggle with that, if there's people in this room today that have been trying to Earn their way and not just receive their receive your love, that they've been trying to earn your favor and not just receive your love. God, I pray that today that you'd open up their eyes, that you'd open up their hearts to receive your love, and that they would respond in turn with a life of worship. A life of faith, trust and the author and giver of life. We love you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship our God together.